Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia as just being part of the gig when I took on more than 30 years in morning television and radio. Well, dug a little deeper and it turned out that I had a lot more to learn. So in this series, we try to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. Very quickly, a large thank you to another listener who chose to remain anonymous while leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts this week while saying this about the show. On his way to fix his own sleep, Neil has put together an unparalleled collection of interviews with some of the top experts in the field of sleep research and sleep medicine. As a sleep expert myself, I'm often familiar with the guests and what they talk about, but it comes through in such an easy-to-understand conversational format that I'm hooked. That is um, absolutely humbling. Thank you. We also got a note from Amy this week, who's listening in the UK, asked us to tackle the subject of upper airway restriction syndrome. Amy, we have drafted one of the world's leading experts on exactly that subject, and we're in the middle of hammering out schedules so that we can get to the lengthy list of very specific questions that you attached. So thanks a ton for that. And at if you're listening right now, wherever you are, and there's something that you would love to hear us cover, uh, look, if you want to get in touch, you want to leave feedback, you want to review, you want to even support the show in a more tangible way, all the information you need is on our website, thesnoozebutton.com. The link that you're looking for says feedback, reviews, and supports right across the top. If you're using it on a phone, it's on what they call, what do they call that? A hamburger menu, I guess, because it looks like a Big Mac <laughs> up in the top right corner. Sure. Um, we've tried to make all all three things, feedback, reviews, support, as easy as possible. And it's all waiting for you there. This week on the show, I love stuff like this. I love being able to do really deep dives on specific areas of sleep. And if you've been with the show for a while, you know that one of the reasons I started this journey in the first place was the fear that my lifetime of terrible sleep was going to lead to an early end courtesy of cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever bad option you want to pick. That's where this week's guest comes in. Laura Boyarskaita is a neuroscientist and yogi from Lithuania, but she currently lives in Norway. She's finishing up her PhD at the Glia Lab at Letton Center at the University of Oslo. Her field of research is astrocytes and sleep and what she calls brainwashing, the clearance of toxins and waste products from the brain. It is an absolutely fascinating field of study, and we get into it in great depth here, including what we can do to make things different or make things better. Let's find out with Laura Boyarskaita. Laura, I am of the understanding that you have listened to a few episodes of the snooze button, so you already know well in advance what the first question is going to be. Laura, how <laughs> did you sleep last night? Oh, yes. I slept wonderful. I am one of these lucky bastards, lucky people that do usually <laughs> sleep uh, very well. Yes. <laughs> how about you? How did you sleep last night? Uh, well, I mean, I only have my <laughs> Fitbit to go by for now, and my Fitbit says uh, four hours and 28 minutes last night, which for me is not terrible, which is, wow. a, which is a terrifying thing to say. But uh, that <sighs> kind of gets us into why I really was excited about talking to you, because this whole journey that I am on started with the idea that because I only sleep four or five hours a night, usually, and because according to the results from my first sleep test at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, I get 1% 
N3 sleep or slow wave sleep or mm. deep sleep or whatever it is you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. I was under the impression from all the quote unquote science that was out there that that would put me on a direct collision course with Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. cognitive decline and all kinds of things. And when you and I were swapping messages on Twitter and email and whatnot, um, you gave me reason to believe that maybe I have slightly less to worry about than I think I do. Yes. I, well, uh, first of all, I have absolutely no idea how you can function as a human being on four or five hours of sleep or even less what I have understood from your previous podcast episodes and what you have talked. But uh, regarding actually regarding all this uh, sleep and slow wave sleep and this brainwashing topic, right? So just to ha- have everyone on the same page. So uh, now it seems so and many studies point to the fact that your sleep and it seems so that slow wave sleep seems to be important to remove these dangerous biological waste from your brain uh, because these uh, this biological waste might actually end up damaging your brain and accumulation of these molecules have been um, showed to have been shown to be correlated with the diseases such as Alzheimer's Parkinson and whatnot and so far most of the studies looked only at slow wave sleep only at deep sleep you know and we also have another really interesting and very cool sleep type which is rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep and uh, so far as I mentioned before none of the studies looked at it and even in, uh, in a recent review uh, uh one of the uh, one of the uh, creators or discoverers uh, of, of the whole brainwashing concept and the glymphatic system Mike Nedergaard she wrote that uh, you know it's about time that somebody also looks at REM sleep and this is one of the projects that I have been working on in my uh, PhD I'm now quite quite into my PhD soon I start my fifth year and hopefully I will not start it and and defend uh, until then but basically from the results of one of our project what we see that it is very likely that you actually need both of the sleep types to to clear uh, to clear excess fluid and whatnot biological trash molecules from your brain and actually it might be that you need even the cycling between the two sleep states okay now because you've listened to the show before you already know that generally the answer to the first question that a guest gives me sparks 17 (laughs) follow-up questions (laughs) so let's deal with a couple of things right off the top um you've heard if you're listening laura refer to brainwashing and by brainwashing we don't mean sitting someone in a room with a light bulb over their head <laughs> trying to convince them sub subconsciously that they really like chocolate. No, what she's talking about is literally, and so let's separate it into two words, brainwashing, right? We're talking about this, as you said, recent discovery of the glymphatic system, which is kind of like picturing an office building where when the lights go out, the janitorial staff shows up and starts cleaning out all the crud that has accumulated in the office all day long. Am I close? Yes, yes, yes. And actually a very nice metaphor. <laughs> Thank you. I, <laughs> I go for all the nice metaphors I can. So now the, 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 
what, how do I want to describe this? The conventional wisdom mm-hmm. has been and might still be for all I know. I'm, I'm hoping you can point me in the direction here that um, the glymphatic system is critical for getting rid of these waste products because if we don't get rid of these waste products, that's when we start looking at things like cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. Am I still correct on that? Yes, yes, absolutely. So basically, you know, our so all our body is made up of uh, little building blocks, so cells. So, you know, our liver has liver cells and then our brain has brain cells. So, of course, everybody knows the neurons. And then our cells are really active and they, you know, eat sugar, eat or breathe oxygen, and then they do their cell processes, whatever they need to do. And then they spit out quite some byproducts, quite some metabolites. And sometimes uh, these molecules, well, first of all, these molecules need to be uh, cleared away. They need to be washed away. And sometimes these molecules, they get the wrong shapes and they become sticky and then they stick to the brain. And exactly the accumulation of, of these molecules has been shown to correlate and to, with with diseases such as Alzheimer's or par- and Parkinson's, and that's why people talk that uh, you should get your sleep because your brain is cleared out of these waste products when you sleep, so you reduce your risk to 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 get the, these diseases. Does the research right now suggest that the glymphatic system can work retroactively? In other words, if I start, let's say that today. I magically started to get, you know, that 20% of deep sleep and that 20 or 25% of REM sleep that we're all supposed to get or in that ballpark. Mm. Is it, if that was to happen to me today, is my glymphatic system going to be able to undo some of the damage that I've accumulated over all these years of sleeping badly? So uh, I guess my short answer is that I don't know and I don't think that there is research pointing to that. But maybe, you know, it's not that research showed that this is not possible. It's just that there, I don't think there is research exactly on this point. But if I would to speculate, I do think that you could potentially reverse some of the damage. I would be very doubtful to think that you could completely reverse all the damage that has been done, right? But all of these processes are also really multifactorial and very, very complex, right? It's also your genetics plays a big role, whether you are already at risk to to get these uh, these diseases and uh, so on. And the nature of the accumulation of these proteins and whatnot in your brain, this this uh, gunk, I'm going to keep referring mm. to it as gunk, the gunk that needs to be cleared <laughs> out, it's Correct me if I'm wrong, but I get a sense that it's a scenario where for millions of people, it's probably accumulating as we speak and they're not going to become aware that it is accumulating until it's gotten to a stage where it becomes a problem. Yeah, so, so that that is likely, right? And there are all of these lifestyle things that you we are constantly told to be doing to prevent many of the sicknesses and diseases, you know, of course, good diet, good exercise, sleep. But well, now sleep is really on the wave, I feel uh, that everyone is trying to advocate and, and talk about the importance of sleep. And I think that's really cool. I think that's very, very useful, you know, and then maybe people start to sort of take care of it uh, before <laughs> they start seeing uh, problems, you know, with their health and, and, and cognition. 
But it's like cholesterol in some ways in that you go and yeah. you find out from your doctor that, uh, you, you know, your your arteries are getting harder and um, it, it's too late to really do anything other than bypass surgery. You know, it's one of those yes. where <laughs> you, you don't realize how bad it is until somebody points out this is a problem for you. So what do we do? I mean, uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and this may be beyond the scope of the work that you're doing, at least currently. Hmm. But if you look at a person like me who's got at least according to my first sleep lab uh somewhere it was around one percent deep sleep and i think my first lab also said eight or nine percent rem sleep and then my second set of numbers from my second visit were a little bit better Mm. but is it just plain things like sleep hygiene Mm -hmm. and those kinds of things that will improve that or are there Mm. things i can do specifically to target my deep sleep and my rem sleep Ah, yeah. So um, actually, I was thinking that your question will be a little bit different. I thought that maybe you will ask what else you can do uh, to sort of improve your brain waste clearance or clearing clearing the gunk, if, if, yeah. I, if I may. Yeah. So I'll first actually talk about that because I think it's it's quite interesting. And and uh, so um, there are there seem to be things that people can let's say people like you who don't really get good sleep or good deep sleep, right? There seem to be things that these people can do to actually boost a little bit their, the removal of, of the biological trash, you know, and I'm not implying that now everybody can quit sleeping, be super efficient, work 24 hours a day, do these Mm. things that I'm about to tell you (laughs) and then like be totally fine. Right. But mm, so there are three things that I want to tell, uh, exercise, uh, breathing techniques and a little bit of alcohol. But about the last one, I want to be very, very careful. So first okay. exercise, right? So there was one study, but again, done on on mice. So there's still, it still needs to be translated to humans. But basically, uh, scientists had two groups of mice when uh, one group of mice had access to a running wheel. So exercise and the other one did not. And then they measured the rate of brain waste clearance or how good, uh, how good the brain is washed or cleared in the these two groups of mice. And what they saw that brain waste clearance was much better in mice that had access to the running wheel. The ones that actually when translated into human distances, those mice were running, I think it was around 10 kilometers a day or something like that on those. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know they're crazy runners, you know. I also, I work with mice and some of them are just crazy runners. Anyhow, the, <laughs> <laughs> really, <laughs> the point of what I just uh, discussed is that exercise seem, seems to boost fluid flow in your brain and uh, sort of removal of the gunk. Okay, now, before yeah. and I'm going to take you off the rails for a second there, don't yeah, lose yeah. where you were going to go next, because sure, I sure, bet sure. you know what my next question is going to be. Is it that the exercise possible? Is it the exercise itself that did it? Or is it the mm-hmm. exercise influenced the quality of the sleep that the mice were getting? Yeah, so it was actually exercise itself because the, um, the uh, scientists measured um, uh, waste removal from the brain. Um, 
I think it was, oh, maybe it was actually a couple of experiments, like immediately after running. And then after some, some days or weeks of having access to the wheel. So then actually your question is really good because they did not look at the sleep of these mice. So it might be that maybe the sleep was actually uh, quite improved. So a good, good point. You should also be a scientist on the side. <laughs> well, that would be dangerous for the whole planet if that ever happened. <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. So I derailed you. I took you. I took you off topic for a second. So, so there, mm. the two. access to the wheel worked mm. on improving the. I guess let's call it the efficiency of yeah. maybe their glymphatic system. Then what? Yes, so that was exercise. Then uh, there was another paper from a group uh, actually here in Oslo. So I'm in Oslo now. And um, they looked at data from humans. Um, and what they saw is that, um, so there's this fluid that bathes our brain and it's called cerebrospinal fluid. For the sake of simplicity, we can call it the brain fluid. But ba sure. basically this brain fluid is the thing that flows through your brain and clears your brain out of this gunk. And so they had access to uh, sort of how how well the fluid is flowing through the brain and they had access to people's uh, breathing and heart rates. And what they saw is that uh, deep breathing, taking deep slow breaths as compared to shallow <laughs> sort of panicky <laughs> Uh, breath uh, seemed to as well increase the fluid movement and potentially um, brain waste clearance. Um, so potentially breathing techniques might as well sort of boost uh, maybe at least a little bit uh, the removal of all this biological uh, crap from your brain. And what they uh, as well mentioned and hypothesized that maybe Maybe this is how all of these yogic, like breathing exercises and the yogic practices, maybe this is at least part of the mechanism of why they bring as well certain health uh, benefits, you know, both for the body and for brain and cognition. Okay, so keeping in mind that the glymphatic system itself is a relatively recent revelation in mm. science. Talk to me about, because I'm, I'm going to take it back to my metaphor about the cleaning staff at the office building. So I know mm -hmm. that when the office shuts down for the night and the lights go out uh, and the cleaning staff shows up and they clean out all the crap that's accumulated in the office all day, I know that what they then do with it is they throw it in trash bags, they take it to a dumpster, and then a truck comes along and probably takes it to a landfill. Hopefully. What happens, or do we know yet what happens mm -hmm. with the stuff that is getting cleaned out of our brains where does it go then yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So uh, one thing that we know is that, that uh, all this trash enters our body's lymphatic system. So our body's lymphatic system is a collection of uh, several organs and a lot of vessels, like blood vessels, but lymph vessels, uh, which have fluid that runs through them. And all this fluid also goes through the tissues in our body and clears all this biological trash. And then it exits through through uh, blood and liver out, out of our body. So the trash from our brain actually enters the lymphatic systems in, in our sort of neck region and also enters uh, the lymphatic system in meningi
meninges. So meninges are sort of these things that wrap around our brain, uh, these membranes that wrap around our brain. And quite recently, uh, there were lymphatic vessels found there as well. So that's part part of the cleaning system as well. The only thing that we still don't know, actually, there are several ways how the trash from the brain can enter this lymphatic system, but, uh, but, and we don't know precisely where and, and how, but the, well, for our <laughs> discussion, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Okay, but then that's oh, see, I the ah, you're turning on so many light bulbs for me here. I love this. Um, (laughs) So hypothetically, if I have some kind of problem with my lymph nodes, if I have a problem with my lymphatic system, then that is probably also going to get in the way of the disposal of all my brain waste. And then may lead to other, so we may be back to square one where I'm on my collision course with Alzheimer's, et cetera. Am I close? Uh, you know, uh, honestly, I don't know because uh, as long as the trash is removed from your brain, then it sort of becomes your body's and the other body systems problem and not sort of entirely your brain's, if, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm fascinated now with this idea of, okay, mm-hmm. so, because I'm looking for the weak link in the chain. Where So uh-huh. if something's gone wrong with my lymphatic system, then where yeah. does this stuff get dumped? And is it possibly yeah. going to cause me a problem somewhere? Am I looking at potentially a problem with my liver? Am I looking mm-hmm. at, poten- if, if I have, if, if part of where this stuff ends up going as it's being cleaned out is it's getting dumped into my liver so my liver can process it, well, what if I've got some kind of liver issue going on? And is that going going to then is it going to either compound that problem or create a whole new problem i i and i know i'm, I'm asking questions that there probably aren't answers for yet because again the glymphatic system is a reg- relatively new discovery yeah, and yeah. an exciting one at that but you also mentioned in addition to uh the exercise and the hmm. breathing you mentioned a third one and it's yeah. one we need to be careful with but yes. talk to me about the alcohol component yes so uh alcohol again there was the the study was done in mice not in humans again there is still need to translate this into whether it would be you know f- function in the same way in humans but and i have to say that this exercise and alcohol are coming from the same group that came up with the glymphatics concept so that's also something to keep in mind you know Mm. Um, so regarding alcohol, uh, as far as I remember, they had like three groups of mice again, and one, one group, uh, received no alcohol, just either water or sugar water. I don't know. Maybe just water. And then a second group of mice received a low dose of alcohol and a third group of mice received a, a bigger a larger amount of alcohol. Uh, and then what, uh, what the, the results were that the mouse group that received low dose of alcohol, low, which I think the equivalent was like a glass of wine per day for a 60 or 70 kilogram person, mm-hmm. uh, that their uh, clearance, uh, brain waste clearance was uh, slightly improved compared to the mouse group that received water water and uh, not alcohol. And then, of course, this story was just blown away, out of way out of proportion in the media, because then, you know, alcohol can clean your brain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So again, this is a study done in mice. It is interesting. 
you know, maybe it carries something. And then, you know, I, um, I have heard since, uh, since a long time ago that like moderate amounts of alcohol might not completely damage you and maybe even carry some kind of benefit. So the story was sort of played into that. So for the people in the science community that listen to this show, and by the way, when I started doing this show, I didn't think there was a, a single scientist in the world that was going to listen to this. I thought it was a bunch of people <laughs> who were insomniacs and uh, figured, oh, well, yeah. I can't sleep. I might as well listen to this guy's show. Um, but for the people in the sleep world and the science world who listen, they're going to hear this question that I'm about to ask you. And okay. they're either going to be shaking their head or they're going to, you know, say cry me a river or whatever it is they're going to say. But for people who aren't in science, mm -hmm. this is, I think, a place we need to go and and, and it's one of those things that the world is talking about right now as we work on developing a COVID-19 vaccine. So my question becomes, what happens after mice? So you've got mice Aww. and you figured out that here's what happens to, and I know that Michael Grandner in particular is going to love this question because in mice is kind of our standing joke now where there's all these great studies come out and then it's <laughs> dot, dot, dot in mice. Yes. What happens after mice? How do you take uh, a, a, a piece of research that you've done in mice that went a certain way and you want to yeah. then try it on people? What, yeah. What's the next, how do you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so first of all, you need a lot of money. <laughs> but, uh, you know, let's start there. And uh, but basically, when you have certain observations in mice, and this is, you know, this is this is this is my field. I come from a field of so-called basic medical research. So I'm the one sort of do doing the exploration. I'm checking how things work. Maybe it's like that. Maybe like that. Are these cells important? Are or maybe these cells are important? And this is actually something that I really love to do not to be limited uh, uh, yeah by some kind of very um, iron strong hypothesis and so on but okay more, more maybe more more on that later but uh, after you have some observations in so-called model organisms uh, maybe cell cultures or mice or rats whatever your zebra fish um, then if you want to translate it into humans, then comes some studies done in non-human primates. So that's like the next step. And then, of course, there are all of these preclinical, so-called preclinical studies where you have to, if you're testing a compound, you have to test, you know, um, whether your compound is specific. It works only where you want it to work. Then you have to test all the doses. Uh, what's the highest dose? What's the lowest dose? And so on. And after you have all of these parameters and they, you know, they are different for different projects, right? Uh, then you can, uh, then you go to clinical studies and then you go to humans. And I don't know much about it. I have not really worked with humans. <laughs> Why well, like mice? <laughs> so in, <laughs> in humans, then at first you test, uh, again, it depends on the situation, but most often first you test healthy, uh, patients, healthy adults, of course. And then you go to, if, if it's some kind of a drug to treat a disease or something, and then you have to, uh, compare it to a placebo or to an already existing uh, drug to show that, let's say, your drug or your compound is, is better or not. Or the same goes for some kind of interventions or, or, or therapies, you know. Uh, yeah. So keeping in mind that you're, um, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, you're, you're the mice lady. Um, oh, yeah, I like that title. <laughs> <laughs> so in your experience, knowing that you don't work with people, you, you primarily work with mice, um, 
let's say you've come up with this thing. Let's say it's today that you've got this research now that shows, for example, let's do the alcohol one that mm. uh, uh, low dose alcohol uh, increases slightly the efficiency of your lymphatic system or mm. however it is that we're, we're clearing that out. Let's say we've discovered that today. Mm. How long is it going to be? keeping in mind all the other steps along the way. Mm. And let's pretend that all of those steps go flawlessly. Mm. <laughs> How long is it until somebody can say, hey, by the way, that thing that we discovered in uh, 2020 about, mm. uh, in you know, in August of 2020 about mice and alcohol mm. and their lymphatic system, well, now we figured out that it's also true in humans. How long mm. does that process take? Should I be getting excited that uh, something like that <laughs> is imminent in humans? Or is it going to be something that my kid finds out? Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the best person to answer this question. My rough guess is, I guess it would take maybe f f anywhere five to 10 years. I want to say, because, so I, uh, my master's was in pharmacy. So I'm estimating based on how long it takes to develop a drug. And usually it's even longer, right? Sure. But another point that I wanted to make, uh, let's say regarding the humans, uh, another thing that you could do, you could try to use already existing data, let's say, maybe there is a database where you have access to, let's say, how many, how much alcohol people drank throughout their lives. And let's say you can access either their brains after their deaths, or you can see how many people developed Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or other sort of types of neurodegenerative diseases caused by accumulation of this trash. And then at least you could do some kind of correlational studies uh, in humans. And it requires you the very first thing you said when I said what's next after mice <laughs> is you said it requires a lot of money and so that requires the people that are holding the purse strings looking at the work you did with mice and feeling mm. like one there's something compelling here and two there's something important right yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely of, of course and you know it's it's all the relevance and then so that leads back to a question that's almost becoming a recurring theme on the show lately is and you said the same thing uh, as we were getting started that maybe covid in its own ways as as people start discovering just how important sleep is in so many different mm. functions in the human body mm. maybe covid in some ways is doing the sleep world a favor because as we recognize how important sleep is we start to realize how important it is to study it further do you think yeah yes here i have I think I have two comments or like um, I, I want to also discuss the other part of the medal or whatever saying for this type of thing you have in English. Mm -hmm. But so, yes, sleep is important. Right. And now, as you say, I absolutely agree that everyone is really talking about how sleep is important for our immune system. And I also see how sleep researchers, including me, are sort of, if I may say, use this opportunity to get the awareness up regarding sleep and the importance of sleep. But I'm a little bit afraid that that might also cause sleep problems because people who, let's say, they start to worry like, oh my God, I have just read that I must sleep seven to nine hours and, you know, I sleep six and I feel fine. Maybe I don't feel fine. And then they start, you know, stressing about it or like, oh, I, I woke up like 10 times this night. I read on WebMD that it should be just three to four times, you know. And when you're exposed to so much information about how sleep is important and, you know, myself included, I speak that, oh, sleep is so important for your 
all of the systems of your body, reproductive, immune, cognition, and that, and that, and that. And then people might get really scared and actually develop psychological problems that, that then create, you know, sleep disturbances. So I think that it's also really important to mention that as long as you don't have too many problems falling asleep, as long as you wake up relatively refreshed and you're like fine throughout your day without, you know, you don't just fall asleep and you're able to, to enjoy your day and function through it. Don't start worrying where it is not necessary. Most probably your sleep is fine. So just not to overdo sort of this, um, sleep thingy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Normally that would have been right there, the place where I would have hit stop on the recorder and uh, congratulated <laughs> you for what an amazing job you did uh, with this conversation. But selfishly, I have one more question. And, and the question might spark an answer from you that is, well, yes, Neil, you're kind of an idiot because you don't know that this test exists. So <laughs> if, if that's the actual answer, feel free to go there. Um, okay. Okay. Is there right now a test? I mean, let's not say today, but when yeah. things get back to normal and people are okay going and getting tested for things, um, is there a test that I can do today that will tell me whether or not there is a level of these uh, proteins or the gunk in my brain that I need to be concerned about? No, no, not that I know of. And I wouldn't think so because uh, getting access to the fluids of your brain is not a sort of everyday routine procedure you need then to get this like a spinal puncture and uh, get a little bit of this brain fluid so that you could then see how much of the stuff of the gunk is in your brain fluid and that's even not a good test because that's just how much of it is in the fluid you have no idea how much of it is stuck in your brain and then i think that maybe only some kind of s s scans and imaging things can tell you something about that but these are difficult procedures and Usually you, you only get access to this type of information if you are having some um, test or some measurement for another type of thing. Interesting. Okay. So there's maybe another new frontier and that's the day that Laura will be picking up her Nobel Prize in medicine is the day that she comes up with whatever the easily accessible test is. Yes, hopefully. Uh, I, I, I like the, I like your chances. Um, Laura, this was such a fun conversation and I learned about 700 things that I didn't know before we started. Nice. I'm I incredibly grateful. Well. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Laura Boyerskaita on the Snooze Button Podcast. Links to a bunch of Laura's work in the show notes and also on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. That's where you're also going to find the various ways of connecting that we laid out before. And some cool updates coming soon as I begin some research of my own. Granted, it's outside of a controlled laboratory environment. And no, it's not the same kind of controlled laboratory environment studies that we conducted in the 60s. No, um, these are completely different. They have to do with sleep. And I'll give you details on them soon. In the meantime... My name's Neil. See you next week here on the Snooze Button. Hey, get some sleep, would you?